Well, good evening. It is my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this evening. I also bring you greetings from our children. They all um, chose to stay home tonight. We're all just getting over the flu. So if my wife and I don't greet you enthusiastically, it's not because we're, um, you know, those awful Blue Ridge District people or anything. It's because we don't want to share. I'm sure you don't want to. Turn me to Psalm 121. I'll start at verse 1. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. He will not suffer thy foot to be moved. He that keepeth thee will not slumber. Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is thy helper. The Lord is thy shade upon thy right hand. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve thee from all evil. He shall preserve thy soul. The Lord shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Where does my help come from? You know, roads take the easiest course. They follow along the bottomlands, in between and around, but not over hills and mountains. We surely know that here. If we look around, every gap in the mountains on either side of us has a road going through it. As the psalmist passes along this road, he looks up to the hills around him, and he knows that they can hide enemies, bandits, and they can attack suddenly and with the advantage of height. And he asks, where does my help come from? This is a song of ascents. So the pilgrims would sing these songs on their way up to Jerusalem. Like them, our walks take us between the mountains, surrounded by an ungodly society, scoffers and haters of the Lord, people doing and approving all kinds of evil. We're ambushed and attacked from every side. How will we make it home? Well, the answer for the pilgrims and for us is the same. And it comes immediately in verse 2. My helper is the Lord. So what does that help look like? And how do we access it? How do we call for it? And how does God send it? Well, one way he provides that help for us is through accountability. We talk about accountability a lot, but people in unregulated churches, they really have no reference point. People outside of the church altogether, even less so. Accountability is one of those things that you might be asked about by people outside the church, or you might have questions about it yourself. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and with fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. So, do we have answers? Well, what are the questions? What is accountability? What does it even mean to be accountable? Accountable for what and to whom? Sorry, excuse me. Perhaps most importantly, how is accountability help? 
So what does accountability mean? How is it used in Scripture? Well, actually, that form, accountability, isn't. We don't find it in the King James. But in the King James, we do have the word account 11 times. And eight of those 11 times is the same word that's translated as account. Matthew 12, 36, they shall give account thereof. Matthew 18, 23, would take account of his servants. Luke 16, 2, give an account of thy stewardship. Acts 19, 40, give an account of this. Romans 14, 12, give an account of himself to God. Philippians 4, 17, fruit may abound to your account. Hebrews 13, 17, as they must give account. 1 Peter 4, 5, who shall give account to him. We'll look at most of those verses as we go along, but in each one we see an explanation and a promise of judgment. Now, except for Philippians 4.17 there, they all sounded kind of negative, didn't they? You're going to have to account for this or for that. We get the picture of a ledger of accounts in balance. Is there enough good, enough payments to offset the bad, the debt? Are we in balance? But these eight places aren't the only time that this word is used in Scripture. In fact, it's used quite a lot. And maybe if we saw some of the other places, well, I wonder if we might think of this accounting in a little bit of a different light. How about this one? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The word translated as account in those other eight verses is rendered here as word, logos. Now, we've talked about, I've talked about this verse quite a bit, but every adult Greek would be expected to be able to tell at any time what his logos was. His logos would be his reasoning for life. The reason, the things that he did, he did according to his logos, the thoughts and the knowledge that he lived and made his decisions by were his logos. A man's logos was really the word that he lived by. When Jesus came, we saw God's logos. We saw the reasons that he did the things that he did. He made us the way he made us. In addition, a man's logos is his story. It's more than just an accountant's ledger of good and bad acts. His logos is the account, the story of his life. All that he had thought and done and the reasons he had acted the way that he had. Now, even if you're not a parent, you've probably experienced the little child who ran up to you excited to tell you some great thing about his day. Just just has to get it out. You have to know that I did this thing on this day. And if you are a parent, you've probably also had that same child come up to you to tell you about the thing he shouldn't have done that day, that he did. Each of us will have the opportunity to give our account, our story, our logos to God. Will it be a story that we're anxious to tell? So that's what accountability is. It's the opportunity or requirement to share our story. So who will we tell our story to? Well, Romans 14, 11 says, For it is written, 
As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. And so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Now, Paul's quoting Isaiah here, Isaiah 45, 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that unto me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear. So God created us. He designed a purpose for us. And he has every right to ask for an accounting from us. And he clearly states that he is going to do exactly that. Scripture speaks repeatedly of this accounting. In Revelation 20, 12 says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. So we're going to be accountable. Now, accountable about what? What are we accountable for? What in our story does God want to hear? What are the things we have to tell? Revelations 20.12 tells us we will be judged according to our works. So all the things that we have done. Now, Jesus tells us we will be judged for the things that we have not done. In Matthew 25.45, he says, then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch ye did it not to one of these, the least of these, ye did it not to me. We will have to explain the evil thoughts that we have harbored and the resulting words that we've spoken. In Matthew 12, 35, Jesus says, A good man out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. But we will also be able to tell of the things that we have done for the Lord. Philippians 4, 15 and 17 says, Now ye Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica ye sent once and again unto my necessity." Not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. Their actions, their taking care of Paul, abounded to their account. But all this is about judgment. How is judgment a help to me? We all know our own story, and everyone's story includes sin. We, we know where we are when it comes time for judgment. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Hebrews 4.13 says, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. We cannot hide our sins from God. The knowledge of our sin and that we will have to tell our story to the Lord compels us to find a remedy for our situation. In Acts 2, verse 37, after Peter gives the sermon at Pentecost, the people said, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, that ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the knowledge of our sin compels us to reach out to Christ to make our story right. 
Having accepted Christ, we still continue to test our readiness. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Test yourself. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. Now, judgment, how is judgment going to come then? You remember when you were in school and it'd be Thursday and Thursday is kind of a no work day and, and you show up and you really weren't studying overnight because you know there are no tests or anything today. and It's just going to be an easy, laid back kind of day. And you go in and the teacher has that funny little grin on his face and he says, yeah, we're going to have a pop quiz and you are done. God's not like that. Judgment is not a pop quiz. We know every day of our lives what God expects of us. And we know what our account, what our story is. You can know where you are with God. We know if the main character of our story is self or Jesus Christ. And this is a mercy and a help to us. Acts 4.11 says, This is the stone which was set at naught of the you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there a salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. We can change our story. When the main character of our story becomes Jesus, judgment turns to grace, and God has made a way for us to travel the valley between the hills and bring us out safe. And we have his many promises that he will bring us through. Well, so how does he do it then? Where does this help come from? Well, am I my own helper? We live in a time of self-help. You go into any bookstore, and by far the largest section of the bookstore will be the self-help section. Does that work? Well, you know, the Bible offers quite a lot of self-help tips, doesn't it? First, we can be accountable to ourselves. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 13, we can review our story. We can examine ourselves and see if Christ is on our throne. The scripture tells us, if he is, how to keep him there. And if he is not, the scripture tells us how to get him there. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. We can help ourselves by our focus, seeking, seeking Jesus and not the temporary things of this world. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Your temptation comes to the mind, and the mind makes the body act. If we keep our minds focused on good things, lovely things, then temptation is pushed away. We are focused on the things of God. Romans 12.2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This exercise strengthens our mind and our hearts, letting us see God's plan for us. So God gives us advice to help ourselves. 
Was that all he does? No. God himself will be our helper. We are accountable to God, but he does everything he can to make sure that our story is pleasing to him so that we will eventually be with him. God does not just leave us to ourselves. He has provided the way to salvation, sought us, and rescued us. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation I have secured thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. God's generous offer is for everyone's sins to be covered. 1 John 2.2 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He promises to adopt us into his family. Colossians 1, 12 through 14 says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. He reaches out to us and pursues us, even as we defy him. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Jesus promises that he and the Father will live in us. In John 14.19, he says, Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. And Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, though not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and he will come unto him, we will come unto him and make our abode with him. How much help do we need? The Father, the Spirit, the Son, all promise to come and live in us and with us. But God doesn't stop there. He surrounds us with even more helpers. The church is our helper. God has given us the church as a safe place to worship him and to tell and share our stories. Different groups of people in the church are there to help you in different ways. The first is your ministry. Now, why should you share your account, your struggles, your concerns, your stumblings with the ministry? Why with them in particular? Why should you trust them with that? Well, your ministry has a charge to take care of you. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4 says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Why are we all here? We're here because we find ourselves together on the same road. We want to have the same destination. 
We are here willingly because we want to be with Jesus. Your church leaders aren't shepherds because it's profitable to them in any worldly sense, but because they love the Lord, they love you, and they want to serve God and serve you. I haven't exercised your Bible flipping skills very much here. Let's turn over to Hebrews 13. Get down to verse 16. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. They must give account. Your story is part of your ministry's story. What did we do when this sheep went astray? What did we do when this one was threatened? What did we do when the flock was in danger? Did we love the sheep? Did we see that they were properly fed, that they were well taught? Would we offer our life for them. When there are bumps in your story, you should be able to share them with your church and with your ministry because they love you. How much? Do they love you enough to trust them like that? Turn over to the end of the letters of Paul's there and find Philemon. Go down to verse 18. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. Albeit, I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me, even thine own self besides. Paul wrote to Philemon, asking him to welcome back a runaway slave, to greet him as a fellow Christian to accept him even as he would accept Paul himself. Here he says, whatever wrong or debt he has to you, put it on my account. And here the word is referring to a financial ledger. Put it on my account and I will pay it. What do you owe God? Do we love you that much that we would say that to God on your behalf? Well, God already said it, didn't he? It was right there in Hebrews 13, 17. They must give an account for you. Trust us. We love you that much. Your brothers and sisters in the church are your helpers. All believers are charged to warn those who go astray. Ezekiel 3, 18 and 19 says, When I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, 
And thou givest him not a warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. <coughs> Excuse me. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. So, it simply should not be possible to be a part of the church and not be warned when our story is not what it should be. Now, this is a tremendous help and blessing to anyone who will listen to their brothers and sisters. We can all be tempted, deceived, or willful. A warning from a loving brother or sister can save our souls. When someone falls, all believers should have a heart to seek them and bring them home. It isn't just the ministry's job. James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Just as the caravan was better able to fend off robbers than a lone traveler, there is safety in the numbers of the church. Close relationships with our brothers and sisters in the church make us stronger. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe unto him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one be, may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. In Proverbs 27, 17, you know, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We can build each other up when we share our stories, when we give account to one another. We talk about accountability partnerships. I'd like to remind everybody, if you have an accountability partner, you are an accountability partner. You work together to strengthen each other. We're stronger together than alone. The real strength here is that these are relationships. This isn't one person lording over another, but brothers and sisters loving and helping each other. Turn over to Ephesians, uh, no, you don't have to turn to that one. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So we have all this help available. So again, how do we get it? 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye speak all the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. It's hard to help one another in our Christian walk if we don't agree on what that walk looks like. When we talk about unity in the church, that is what we're talking about. If we have agreement together on what our Christian walk looks like, then we can guide each other much more easily in, our, in what that walk is going to be. Ephesians 4.25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man the truth to his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Members of the body means members together. The more honest and open we can be with each other, 
the more we can help each other. <coughs> turn over to James 5. And down to verse 13. You probably didn't need to turn to it. You probably have it memorized. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So what do we do when someone tells us their story? What are our responsibilities then as helpers to one another? What if their story isn't so good? People do terrible things. Good people do things they can barely tell. What if the main character in their story is just self? What if it's even Satan? What if their story is one of a terrible struggle? What's, what is our responsibility then? I'll turn back to Romans 14. And down to verse 10. But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. So the first thing, when we hear our brother's story, we have to remember that we don't get to judge. Judgment is reserved for God. Now, you know whether a story is good or bad, but it's not up to you to condemn your brother. That is for God. Our response determines whether or not our brother or our sister will be able to come and confess their sins here. If the only result of coming up here and confessing to a struggle or to a fall is to be shamed or gossiped about, you can safely predict that no one is going to come and confess to much of anything. People confess not just because they can't bear their guilt. They confess because they can't overcome their sin. They confess because they want help. Turn over to Galatians 6. Let's start at verse 1 there. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. So when we're comforting someone or working with someone who is struggling with a sin, we have to consider ourselves. Why? Are we going to be tempted by the same sin? Well, possibly. But what Paul's really talking about here is that we'll be tempted by pride. I would never do that. I would never be tempted by that. I wouldn't fall to something like that. But we're all subject to the same temptations. We all share the same weak flesh. So don't be tempted to pride. You need to care for your brother. We are to comfort and restore and bear each other's burdens. We have to freely love, freely forgive, and freely encourage. Luke 17, 3, 17, 3 and 4, Jesus says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if you repent, forgive him. And if you trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. <coughs> That's a hard one. It's hard to forgive anyway. You know, people do terrible things. But remember, vengeance is God's. We are to seek to restore the fallen so they can serve God again. Hebrews 10.24 says, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as also ye do. Nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to tear each other down. Your brother's story is telling you he's already torn down. You don't need to make the rubble bounce. Your job is to build him back up. When a brother or a sister gives us their account, when they tell us their story and, and we listen, whether, whether they're able to come up here and tell the whole church or whether they can only speak it just to you in the lowest whisper, it's all they can bear. Their story becomes our story. God expects us to react. God expects us to help his child. He doesn't expect us to run to ministry or anyone else and just tell others. You have been chosen to help. Talk, listen, pray, visit, answer, comfort. If your help isn't bringing that person closer to victory, then you need to convince them to bring in more help, to share their story with another, and then keep adding and adding help until the victory is won. 
<coughs> Think of Matthew 18 instead of building up pressure as adding helpers. Whether they spoke only to you or they spoke to the whole church, call and check on them. People don't make confessions and just expect it to be done, forgotten. They asked you for help. Brother, how's your walk? How are you doing today? What have you done today? What can I do for you? What can I do to build you up, to comfort you, to help you? If they call you and say, brother, I'm struggling, go. Go and be with them and strengthen them. I don't mean, okay, well, I'll see if I can get around there tomorrow or or next week. No, go. I'm talking leave the chopper running in the field, go. All right? I'm talking get up from the dinner table and go, go. Your brother's soul is in danger. Go. Your presence, your love, your caring will save his soul. Go and pray with them and comfort them and love them. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. If that is how we respond to each other when we struggle, then instead of failure after failure, we will see victory after victory. God has made a way for our help to come through accountability.